You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. The views and opinions expressed on this show do not necessarily represent those of the network, its advertisers, owners, or sponsors. Conversations and Meditations. I'm your host, Virgil Varix. Today is uh, July 21st, 2018. And okay, let's get started with the show. Okay, so today's show, I uh, wanted to kind of piggyback off what we talked about last week in a way. And uh, somebody I mentioned in terms of an economist or uh, somebody you guys should look into or, you know, uh, was uh, Thomas Sowell. So, you know, Sowell's an American economist. He's also a social theorist. He's a senior fellow at the Hoover Institute and Stanford University. And uh, Dr. Sowell has written a lot of books about economics, about policy, about uh, history, uh, race, um, all different types of things. And um, something that he wrote about a while back. Uh, first published in 87 and there was a revision in 2007, was a book called A Conflict of Visions. Now, I kind of want to go over some of the points that Sowell made in A Conflict of Visions and uh, kind of get into why I think it's an important book and I think uh, should be mandatory reading for anybody that's um, going into college, um, specifically if you're going into uh, politics and uh, stuff like that. So – the book, uh, you know, was called "A Conflict of Visions," and the subtitle is uh, "Ideological Origins of Political Struggles." So, um, in this book, so, you know, Sowell's, you know, cha- uh, the opening chapter, you know, he, t- he attempts to answer questions of why people, you know, same people tend, to, you know, in, in areas tend to be political adversaries and and have different opinions on certain things. And um, he also, you know, it's also kind of evident in today's society. Well, why do you see a person who uh, might be in extreme support of the Second Amendment as well will also be a denier of climate change? Um, now, not everybody that supports the Second Amendment is a, a climate denier, climate change denier, but you could you could make a, a justifiable claim that. You could tie those two things together, and there's nothing connecting those two things together inherently. I mean, there's no, there's no connecting thread. You would think, and you know, this is kind of a, um, a sign that people are going into tribes more and more, and they're not really looking at individual issues and specific issues in a um, meaningful and you know well thought out way. So, the main the main crux of the book. Um, Sowell talks about he, – he talks about that there, these conflicts, these disagreements between groups of people uh, on various topics and issues and subject matter um, stem from visions or intuitive feelings that people have about human nature specifically. And uh, the different visions imply radically different consequences for how you would think about certain things, everything from war – to uh, the size of government, to the the job of government, to justice, to uh, religion, religious institutions, um, and their role uh, in um, you know society. So, the two visions that Sowell talks about is um, the unconstrained vision and the constrained vision. 
And um, many people have uh, taken this and expanded upon this idea. You have people like uh, Harvard psychologist and linguist uh, Steven Pinker in his book. Uh, what was his? Uh, I'm trying to remember the name. Uh, come on, Blank Slate. There it is. Uh, Stephen Pinker's book, Blank Slate. He took uh, these two um, ideas that you know by soul. He referenced it, of course, and he kind of built upon it, and he kind of came up with the the distinction that you know there's the unconstrained is you know synonymous or equal to the utopian vision of man, and the constrained vision is equal or, or synonymous to the um, tragic vision of man. So pretty much the um, the unconstrained vision. Uh, Sowell argues that the unconstrained vision relies heavily on the belief that human nature is essentially good. Those with an unconstrained vision distrust decentralized processes and are impatient with large in institutions and system, uh, systemic processes that, con uh, that constrain human action. They believe there is an ideal solution to every problem and that compromise is never acceptable. Collateral damage is merely the price of moving forward on the road to perfection. Sowell often refers to them as the self-anointed. Ultimately, they believe that man is morally perfectible. Because of this, they believe that there exists some people who are further along the path of moral development, have overcome self-interest, and are immune to the influence of power, and therefore can act as surrogate decision-makers for the rest of society. The constrained vision, and this is the, this is the polar opposite to that. Um, and in this, Sowell argues that the constrained vision relies heavily on the belief that human nature is essentially unchanging. You know, the human nature is a constant and the man is naturally um, inherently self-interested regardless of whatever best intentions that uh, an individual might have or a group might have. Um, those with a constrained vision prefer uh, systemic processes over the rule of law and experience of tradition. Uh, compromise is essential, is essential because there are no ideal solutions, only trade-offs. Um, those with a constrained vision favor solid empirical evidence – uh, time-tested structures and processes over in, uh, intervention and personal experiences. Ultimately, the constrained vision demands checks and balances and refuses to accept that all people could put aside their innate self-interest. Now, as you can see here, there, there seems to be a, a pretty clear dividing line between, um, between these two types of visions. And um, I, I think we can kind of further break this down and unpack it and kind of see how this affects our everyday lives and see how, you know, others we might disagree with fall into these lines and how we fall into these lines and where, do, where we are. So, you know, like I said, in, in, in terms of constrained, man is by nature flawed, selfish and limited. You know, under the constrained vision, man seeks to deal with his flaws and excesses by establishing institutions of restraint, you know, the separation of powers, constitutions, uh, religious organizations, those who employ the constrained vision sees abuse of powers, abuse of power by leaders like Napoleon as inevitable, not necessarily as a fluke. For this reason, limitations must be placed on power and uh, on the institutions themselves so that it is more difficult for any individual to abuse them. The idea is to decentralize the power so that man's flaws are not catastrophic. So a modern example of, of this, or not necessarily a modern, you know, kind of a uh, historical example. First, I'll do that. Um, of a country that's kind of built on a constrained vision would be, uh, in a lot of ways, the United States with the separation of powers, uh, the constitution, and uh, the gridlock that is essential for uh, stopping the executive branch from overstepping its boundaries and all these other stuff. So that's kind of, you know um, – just a little bit of examples of the constrained, uh, the constrained vision. Um, the unconstrained, you know, by contrast, sees abuses of power as being caused by not having chosen the right leaders or establishment of the right kind of institutions. Um, you know, implicit, you know, when Sowell mentions that is is the notion that the potential is very different from the act from the actual, and uh, this means, and that means exist to improve human nature towards its potential, you know, or that such means can be evolved or discovered so that man will do the right thing for the right reason rather than for an ulterior uh, economic rewards or psychic rewards. And central to the unconstrained vision is a notion that human beings are highly malleable and they can be trained in the service of some ideal. Now, I, uh, I tend to, to understand where both of these are coming from. 
uh, I tend to see that when when people have these minor, you know, again, this is this is a this is a this is a disagreement on how what what is the nature of, of human beings and how how much of that nature can be altered and shifted towards a um, altruistic, you know, um, ideal that is uh, can be serviced by an individual. You know, and I mentioned Steven Pinker. And, you know, he kind of builds on his work in the blank slate, you know, the modern denial of human nature. And um, he – like I said, he called souls constrained the tragic vision of humanity and he called the unconstrained the utopian vision. Um, but he, Pinker argues that the unconstrained vision is rooted in the false belief that individuals are born with no pre-programmed software or, you know, technically innate, innate, innate human nature. Um, this blank slate, which was pushed by Locke and other philosophers during the Enlightenment, belief, uh, you know, was based on good intentions. You know, Pinker thought that, you know, after all, if, if we were born equal in every way, this could also eradicate social and economic concepts of inequality. But the problem is that human behavioral sciences have already demonstrated that human minds, you know, does in fact come with certain innate biological programming, which is unique for every individual. So. And a really easy understanding of what I'm trying to say, without getting into uh, Pinker's continuous, you know, continued arguments in the blank slate, and that would take, that'd be another whole another show on uh, human nature, which I'd love to do. But um, you know, an, an, an example of a pre-packaged software within our within our uh, biological programming would be uh, the ability to pick up languages. Um, for you that have children. Um, at a certain point, you know, kids start to pick up a language. You know, you didn't have to teach them necessarily. You didn't have to. Go, I mean, a lot of people do go out of their way and speak to their kids, and yeah, obviously that would have tremendous effects on on their verbal acuity. But um, this is something that every human being has the ability to do, and it's so strange and so weird that even twins. I have twins in my extended family, and when they were young. They actually developed uh, their own language um, and this is well known um, in many different cases. I think it's about 50 percent of twins uh, develop their own language. So this is kind of uh, kind of a well-known part of uh, – it's called cryptophasia. That's the name of it and it's secret speech and it's only – it's speech it's speech and language that only the twins can understand and pretty much nobody else. But after a few years, maybe by the age of four or five, the language disappears and they pick up uh, the language of their parents. Um, but that's just a, a little example of how, uh, you know, how language is part of our nature and how it's not just some learned um, trait that we have. You know, um, but this is the thing when it comes to the vision. Uh, the tragic vision and the utopian vision, and this is taken from from Pinker's point of view in a way. You know, in the tragic vision, you know, humans are inherently limited in knowledge, wisdom, and virtue, and all social arrangements must acknowledge those limits. So, mortal mortal things suit mortals best, <laughs> wrote Pinder, and from the crooked timber of humanity, no truly straight thing can be made. Uh, that was uh, another quote by Kant. And uh, you could see Pinker's bringing up other philosophers and, and thinkers um, to kind of break this down. And he, he, he kind of goes into the, the people that are associated with the tragic vision, the constrained vision, are people like Hobbes, uh, Burke, Smith, Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, um, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., uh, Hayek, Frederick Hayek, uh, The Economist, and also Milton Friedman, uh, Karl Popper, Isaiah Berlin, um, those are some philosophers and legal scholar Richard Posner or Posner. In the, in the utopian vision, psychological limitations are artifacts that come from social arrangements and we should not allow them to restrict our gaze from what is possible in a better world. Its creed might be some people see things as they are and ask why. I dream things that never were and ask why not. This quotation is often attributed to uh, – you know uh, Robert Kennedy, Robert F. Kennedy in the 1960s, but it was originally penned by uh, the Fabian socialist George Bernard Shaw, who also wrote, "There is nothing uh, that can be changed more completely than human nature when the job is taken in hand early enough." 
Uh, the utopian vision is also associated with people like uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, uh, Godwin, uh, Thomas Paine, uh, jurist um, Earl Warren, the economist John Kenneth uh, Galbraith, and to a lesser extent, you know, political philosophers uh, Ronald Dworkin. So, you know, just to just to break this down a little more and uh, and kind of give a, a clear vision to these visions is, um, you know, I just want to quickly go over a little things here and there. So like we talked about the unconstrained utopian vision sees man nature as perfectible and malleable and can be um, changed. Um, towards a altruistic value, an altruistic virtue that is above the status quo. Um, the constrained vision, the tragic vision of man, uh, sees man's nature as flawed, inherently flawed, selfish, and is a constant throughout history. It's fixed. Um, for the unconstrained, they talk about that society should be led by the strongest and the most capable among us. Under the right institutions, um, you know, and uh, the unconstrained talk believes that all people should be restrained in what they should be able to do. And they believe that political leaders uh, to be the same flawed, selfish, fixed nature as everybody else and thus the importance of separation of powers and constitutions and laws preventing people from uh, usurping power. These things are necessary in uh, in their environment. So some examples of this quickly – is you know for the unconstrained utopian vision, society should be led by the strongest and most capable among us under the rights and right institutions. This can pretty be pretty much be summed up in you know Marxist Leninists type of theory. You know um, the the proletariat who knew what the proletariat needed during the revolution during the Bolshevik revolution. Thus, you needed a vanguard, an intellectual vanguard. You know people who were the strongest and smartest and most educated to lead you to the right path. And then obviously um, that didn't go well and uh, millions of people died and and uh, whether it was directly by uh, force or whether it was by famines. And um, it seemed that these leaders were not the best or strongest or most capable among uh, the populace <laughs> under the right – and specifically because they believed they had the right institutions at the time. And um, – like I said, the constrained uh, vision, that would be an America, uh, any Western democracy. And obviously, Western democracies have their flaws and have their issues and there needs to be things that will, you know, put us back on the right path. But, you know, the unconstrained utopian vision, people who are un who are part of the unconstrained, they judge laws by their intentions. Um, the constrained judge laws by their effects and consequences. The unconstrained vision favors human action motivated by selfless, selflessness and sincerity. Um, the constraint is less concerned with motives behind human action as long as the interactions between individuals are positive some. So when I, when I, when I say positive some, I mean uh, – so an example of a positive some type of thing is I work, I mow a lawn, I get 20 bucks, I go to the butcher he has a stake there. It's worth it's you know it's the price is twenty dollars. At that moment, the stake is worth more than the twenty dollars for me, and at that moment for him, um, the money is worth more than the stake. So we both get what we want. Nobody's being taken advantage of. There's no exploitation. That's an example of positive sum. So the constrained vision isn't concerned necessarily with the motives behind the actions, as long as there is a positive sum at the end of it. That was just a very simple explanation. I mean, positive sum, I you know, can be taken to a whole other level. Um, so the unconstrained vision, a utopian vision of man, sees racism, crime, um, and you know, etc. Et as a socially learned phenomena. You know, and um, the constrained vision sees racism, crime, etc. Just part of man's flawed, selfish, fixed nature. So. Uh, the people on the other side, the unconstrained side, tend to see all these things as learned behaviors, as um, you know, nature versus nurture, more so nurture, and then people who see who are part of the unconstrained point of view um, see racism, crime, and you know all these other things as part of man's 
nature as a part of our of our flawed fixed nature. Um, again, the unconstrained seeks to explain the causes of war and poverty um, and crime. You know, and uh, the const- the uh, the constrained vision sees war, poverty, and crime as having been the norm throughout human history due to man's flawed, selfish, and fixed nature, and instead seeks to explain the causes of peace, wealth, law, order, and morality. Um, so you could see there that one is the, the, the unconstrained, the utopian vision of man is seeking to explain the negative consequence, the negative parts of our behavior as, as human, as, is, you know, part of our behavior and our nature as humans. Um, with the constrained vision, they see the war, the poverty, the crime as a, con- as a norm, as a constant throughout human history because of our fixed nature. And instead, they seek to see why there is peace. Why is there wealth uh, in the world? Why is there law and order? Why is there morality? Why is there nation states that respect individual rights? You know, they, they're trying to understand all this. So ra- there's a difference in, in the way they, they see how, you know, the evils that humans produce, you know, natu- you know uh, man-made evils, how they see that being manifested, whether it's socially learned or whether it's part of our nature as human beings. And they also seek to explain the causes of this versus, you know, the, the, the constrained vision, which understands that war and poverty and crime are, are just a package deal when it comes to humanity. Um, so when you talk about economics now, and, and this goes into a little bit of uh, a little bit into his book, and I'm going to give a few quotes here and there. But um, for the unconstrained vision, they see the market economies as obeying the power of particular interests, and should therefore be made in the future to obey the power of the public interest. Um, this vision seeks to define the public interest by itself. You know, and again, like I made in the individual individualism versus collectivism show, who knows what the public interest is? Who who's deciding this? Um, and if it comes down to a democratic process, uh, 51% you know, see something as a public interest. There's another 49% that don't. So you have to take that into consideration. Um, for the, the constrained vision sees market economies as a responsive to systemic forces and the interaction of innumerable individual choices and performances. So they see that more so as a as a system of uh, of merit in, in a lot of ways um again for the unconstrained they seek economic and social equality even if the means chosen imply great inequality in the right to decide such issues and choose such means um through the unco- through the constrained vision they seek equality through freedom of choice um and lastly, uh, the last two points I have on the unconstrained and constrained visions and the differences between them is um, the unconstrained points to human irrationality as proof that the strongest and most capable among us must lead. So that's a very interesting point. Um, they see that you know people are dumb and they make bad decisions and they're not self they're not thinking about their their health and their interests so they they feel that you know the strongest and most capable and smartest of us should be leaders because of that and they use that as as proof of why you should have some type of vanguard um for the constrained vision they're less concerned with whether or not individuals always behave rationally they emphasize that leaders come from the same pool of flawed selfish and fixed human beings so there isn't some type of um you know fixed thing. So it's 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 obvious to me that this is where the foundational disagreements come from. Um it it happens it happens to be that when we disagree on a foundational thing like human nature, right? And um Human nature is such a touchy subject because most people believe that, you know, yeah, we're technically animals, but most people believe that we're – the way evolution has affected us is completely different than the way evolution has affected other animals throughout history and the way their behaviors evolved and the way they changed. And I guess a few reasons for that. I mean the religious reason is obviously we have a soul and it's manifested and it's connected to God. 
Um, I guess the more unconstrained vision of that would be um, that, uh, you know, this is, uh, you know, that's the, just, that's the unconstrained vision, I mean, would be that's just the way it is. You know, in, in the unconstrained vision, it, the ends justify the means. Um, constraining power, you know, into two visions, Soul makes, uh, Soul makes a very good point about, you know, how and when these things and these visions should be taken into effect, specifically into our understanding of, um, of different people throughout history and where they line up and different ideas and different ideologies. Um, so, you know, just to kind of give my, my take on it, cause that's basically the main gist of the argument, right? Uh, and, now that we understand, at least have a really basic understanding, and I, I again, I I want you guys to go out there and uh, if you're interested, to pick up this book and to get into it and to see um, to see where where this can go because the concepts in the book are just so great and are so interesting and, and timeless. The idea of you know uh, the nature of man and kind of getting into that and the ideas that you know trade offs versus solutions. You know, that's a, that's another thing I mentioned earlier and in, in, in The Unconstrained, they talk about the concept of a solution remains central to the vision. You know, a solution is achieved when it's no longer necessary to make a trade-off, even if the development of uh, the solution entailed costs now passed. The goal of achieving a solution is in fact what justifies the initial sacrifices or transitional conditions which might otherwise be considered unacceptable. You know, for the for the constrained vision – uh, the careful weighing out of trade-offs is among the highest duties in a constrained vision. You know, uh, deals in trade-offs rather than, you know, the constrained deals in trade-offs rather than in solutions. All human in, uh, institutions are flawed because people are flawed and therefore there are no perfect solutions to problems. So this is, um, it's, it's tough. It's a tough, it's a tough way to, to see things and, um, you could definitely see how you could fit. You could definitely find out where you where you fit in with this, and you can definitely find out whether or not this is um, something that makes sense to you. Because to me, this is the first step into getting to the next level of talking to somebody. You know, this gets into the next level of honestly understanding where a person's coming from understanding you know cuz a lot of people will ultimately hear somebody and hear somebody say something and get into the mode and get into the idea that okay well what this person is saying to me is obviously something i don't disagree with something i disagree with and something that for some reason or another make me feel a certain way and this reaction has gotten me feeling that this person that i'm talking to is inherently immoral because of their opinions or their beliefs so this kind of piggyback. So the reason I wanted to bring up Soul, you know, initially, and kind of uh, start off with that, is because this is how we should probably view things and view discussions when we talk to people we disagree with. Understanding that people fall usually fall into either one of these visions, and that if we don't realize that, we're going to tend to have disagreements on policies on positions that inherently aren't the real crux of the dis disagreement. The disagreement really is at what we believe human nature is and what we believe human nature isn't and how much influence, you know, individuals have to shifting or molding their nature into one that is more desirable for, you know, the public or the good or the, co the common good or society or whatever word you want to put onto it. But, you know, this kind of gets into what I want to talk now about is civility. Now, a lot of people have been going back and forth about civility and, oh, we have to be civil. And you have people from both the left and both the right saying you have to be civil and all this stuff. And people have criticized them from both the left and the right uh, talking about that. Well, civility is not needed in today's uh, day and age and today's politics, being civil, being charitable to another person isn't necessary because other people's views are so 
beyond the pale that um, that they're an inherent threat to our to our everyday lives and to the way we live. So I, I kind of want to see what are these civility arguments really about, and why are they why are they coming up now, and I I really want to answer or try to answer this the questions of you know does civility matter in in terms of a well functioning country a well functioning democracy a well functioning society and the second question does civility matter to uh, the public does civility ma- matter to the to the to the voting you know a portion of the country does civility matter to people that are politically active or people that are you know conscious about these types of things. And uh, these questions tend to have, you know, tend to be in different in different places. So when I talk about civility, there's, you know, this was, um, I read this in a uh, uh, 538 uh, post and something they mentioned was, you know, powerful people being uncivil to powerful people, to other powerful people. That's a one type of civility. Then you have powerful people being uncivil to non-powerful people. And then you also have non-powerful people being uncivil to powerful people and non-powerful people being uncivil to powerful people. Now, this is kind of a breakdown of how civility, you know, manifests itself in society and how civility is being uh, how incivility, excuse me, is being manifested in society and how um we can kind of break this down a little further. So, I would say that, you know, being civil um, in 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 a in a discussion, uh, being civil with 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 your opponents, I think is important. I think it matters. I think it's I think it's a step in the right direction. Um, well, and the reason and not, but the thing is, there are certain people that you know we should not be civil to, and we should put in a box and throw you know, and not have to deal with them. And obviously, people who exp- you know. Talk about racial superiority or anything like or ethnic superiority, anything like this. Obviously, those types of people should be put in a box and never talked about or never talked to, um, because their 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 opinions and their and their values are not congruent with uh, Western civilization and is not congruent with um, what it means to be an American and what it means to be uh, a fellow human. Primarily after we've seen what racial superiority ideologies have done in the past, a.k.a. you know uh, the Nazis and other types of um, racial superiority and ethnic superiority movements like the Ottomans towards the Armenians and the Assyrians and other, other groups throughout the 20th century and even today. Um, so yeah, the people who, who tend to go on the side of that, obviously we shouldn't be civil towards them. doesn't mean we should be violent. It doesn't mean – we should uh, be hateful in, in any way because we don't want to encourage or multiply the effect of of their negativity. So when you deal with people that are at least – the least I could say is unsavory with the worst I could say is uh, a disgusting human being, the best thing I – at least my, my opinion and my point of view is um, if there is a reason to to talk to this person – Meaning, if you want to learn something from them, then the only thing you could really learn from somebody of that type of ilk, somebody of that type of negativity, is uh, an, an examination in in the downfall of human nature and the negatives of human nature. I don't think you can really learn that much about where they're coming from because most of those people are coming from a place of anger, hatred, and fear, more so than a place of honesty and most of those people don't argue in good faith and most of those people will not hear you out in your position and will just judge you for being the way you are so those types of people i think we should we should avoid in in the in the political discourse in our lives and those type of people should be cast aside and not talked to and not talked about because the more we talk about those types of people the more they get notoriety and the more they have um you know, uh, more more people listen to them and, and hear about them. So obviously, there's there's a lot of negative and horrible things to say about that. But being civil towards a person you have a disagreement with. So, for instance, something I uh, I mentioned the other day is um, 
you have people, um, economists, you have historians, you have a bunch of other people that are against particular policies, you know, politicians as well, against particular policies, against particular things. And like, so for instance, um, you have, I think it's about, I think it's 79% of economists, uh, you know, economists today agree that the minimum wage hurts the poor more than helps. Now, it's not my number. This is just a consensus of economists. And so what is that for, for somebody that is a supporter of the minimum wage? What does that say? What does that say about them? Now, a lot of people, not all, but a lot of people will go and say, well, those people just don't care about the poor versus, well, maybe they think there's another way we can help the impoverish and help the, and help the poor. So this jumping to characterizations and this jumping to opinions, you know, because we have presuppositions towards certain points of view. When somebody's an anti-vaxxer, when somebody's anti-vaccine, we have an opinion towards that person. And, and most of the time, the opinion is going to be like, wow, this person is really uneducated about this topic. But in, in all honesty, um, people that are uneducated are not necessarily people that are trying to um, cause problems and cause harm, not, uh, not, not intentionally. So yes, intentions do matter in, in a certain way, but – we need to be more understanding and more charitable in the sense that we can have the discussion and hopefully break this person out of their thought uh, out of their thought bubble because we all all of us every single person that i know including myself are in our little ideological echo chambers and for some people um listening uh listening to somebody talk about their favorite book or their favorite uh, political uh, stance or their favorite economic uh, policy or economic stance, yeah, you're preaching to the choir. Yeah, you're um, you're t- you're taking in information that is only congruent with your already you know presuppositions, your already beliefs. But I think it's important for people on the left and on the right to start listening to the other side because the polarization of our country has gotten to a all-time high in my life. Um, Ram- Rasmussen, their poll came out that said in the next five years, 31% of Americans think there's going to be a, 31% of Americans think there's going to be a civil war. That's crazy. That's insane that 31% of our populace believe that. And that just tells me that uh, you know something I stand by and I live by is if we're not talking, we're fighting. And we've lost the ability, particularly because of the last election and candidate and now President Trump and the way his um, his demeanor and his his ideas and the way he's come off in the public, the way that's turned everybody into um, you know for or against, and it's just two tribes going at each other. Nobody's listening. Nobody's paying attention. And I don't know if this was Jimmy Kimmel, but I think he 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 went one time and and did a thing uh, for with uh, he talked about Trump's policies and changed the name of the politician and a bunch of people were like, yeah, that's not bad. And the thing it's like people don't really think about the policies; people are just joining into tribes. And what we have to do is stop the tribal mindset, stop beating the drums, look at individual issues, specific issues, you know, and give them their time. If you are thinking about a topic like, let's say, abortion, don't just you know think about it for two seconds and then just walk away. Obviously, if it's not a if it's not a if it's not an issue to you, yeah, it's not something you should uh, be thinking about every single day. But obviously, something uh, as important as serious an issue like uh, abortion should be thought about by the populace, not just like, oh well, my ex politician says this about it, so I think that about it. That's not the way we should be thinking. That's not that's not how you think. That's not how you develop a informed populace. But the lack of civility that's going on from uh, the right recently and um, their their attacks against um, and not all members of the right, 
but the, I would say the Trumpian um, right, the alt right, and all these other organizations and their vitriol and hatred towards um, a lot of people, including uh, you know immigrants and people uh, people of color. But something that's interesting there, and you know, obviously there's a there's a big difference in a lot of ways between what the alt right stands for and what a lot of Trump supporters stand for, no doubt. I'm not trying to conflate the two, but something that I, I do understand is that there seems to be a lot of fear and resentment that is going on 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 both sides of the aisle. On the right, you know, it's a lot of fear and resentment towards uh, other people, immigrants, primarily because a lot of people are afraid they're going to steal jobs. Something I talked about last time uh, was about immigration is that 5 to 10 percent, at most 15, but uh, most people don't show it as that. Most people show it as 10 uh, percent of jobs that have been lost in manufacturing have been lost to autom- you know have been lost to immigrants. The rest, ninety percent, you know, eighty percent, eighty-five percent, have been lost to automation. So when people actually get the facts and get the data, and if you present the data to these people without being accusatory and uh, vitriolic, just by sitting there and saying, "Well, look, I think your your position on immigration isn't correct." Because of A, B, and C, rather than saying, well, your position on immigration is bigoted and racist and I shouldn't uh, talk to you. Specifically, this happening in families. I've seen this in families. I've had family members, you know, distant, uh, distant relatives that were, um, were thinking that, you know, immigration and all this stuff wasn't uh, important while at the same time being immigrants themselves. So uh, this stuff is is, is uh, problematic because people are choosing tribes. People are picking tribes. And the moment we start doing that is the moment when we stop listening to each other. And the moment we stop listening to each other is the moment uh, civil discourse disappears. Now, look, I'm not saying to be a martyr and just talk to somebody that you know is going to mistreat you. Absolutely not. I'm not saying that you need to hear everybody's opinion out and you should give them the time of day. No, I'm not saying that either. I'm I'm also not saying that all these opinions are equally valuable because obviously they're not. Some opinions are more valuable than others, just like some ideas are more valuable than others because of their effects in the real world, their consequences and incentives that they create. So – But what I am saying is for people that you are close with, people that you have familial connections or friendships with, that you disagree on guns or you disagree on abortion or you disagree on this and that, if you're going to talk about this stuff with people you care about, you have to do it civilly. You can't, you can't do it, you can't do it any other way. Primarily because it's up to you. I mean, do you want to lose people? That's, that's the first question. Because if you go about this type of stuff uncivilly, in an uncivil manner, you will lose people. You will lose friends. You will lose family members uh, and lose their respect and not only, not only lose their, their, you know, their ability to, to hang out with them and be with them, but you'll lose their respect too. So this is a call for civility, a call to action for people that have been angry, resentful, and and a bit nihilistic about the state of politics in this country, and and a bit not and a bit uh, resentful towards the other the other aisle. Now something something this has to be said. Not all Democrats are agree on everything. Not all Republicans agree on everything. You know, and this I'm specifically talking about the two parties because these are the two tribes that I see. You know, uh, for someone like myself who doesn't subscribe to a political party. Um, who I, I basically subscribe to an ide- a political ideology, you know, like I mentioned earlier, classical liberalism. I don't see, you know, this collectivist tribe mentality taking us any anywhere other than um, people being dissatisfied with the way their lives are working out. And ask yourself this: um, If I am talking to somebody I disagree with, do I find myself getting? Aggravated? Do I find myself getting emotional? Do I find myself getting, um, at, you know, to the point of where I'm about to, you know, go off on somebody? If that's the case, pull yourself back and just say, "Hey, look, I, I got to step out of the situation." Don't get, don't, don't let it get to the point where you lose your cool and you end up, you know, embarrassing the other person and ultimately embarrassing yourself. 
because the model that we should be striving to is not the model that's being presented by our by our current uh, president where we just go and shoot from the hip and just say things and do it particularly for people's reactions to get angry at you and so you can say you're a victim. No. <laughs> and that's as best as my description of what's been going on in the news cycle. But no, that's that's not how we should be going about and doing things. What we should be doing, at least in my opinion, and I could be wrong about this, right? I, I could be completely wrong about civility. I could be completely wrong about um, my opinion on the conflict of visions and, and all this stuff. But I honestly think that if we want to mend our society and get our society back on track and get us to a position where we can actually have a conversation and talk with each other and maybe get some things done, things done for the public, things done for, um, you know, things that will increase prosper prosperity and things that will increase individual freedoms and things that will, you know, decrease the amount of uh, stress on our lives because the 24-hour news cycle isn't helping anybody right now. It really isn't. I mean the way the news is meant to run is it's meant to pump out uh, story after story and if the, the juiciest story of the day gets re-shown over and over and over again and they don't focus on the good news. You know, Last week I talked about the good news and human, a lot of human uh, st stuff in human progress and how things are beginning better but no news – no news site. We'll, we'll go ahead and talk about this stuff because like I said last week, if it bleeds, it leads. Most people by our human nature, ironically, are made to look for danger, made to look for things that are uh, threats, threat assessments, primarily because that's how it was in the Paleolithic period when we needed to survive. So there's a lot of – like I said, there's a lot of evolutionary psychology and a lot of evolutionary behavior things that are still built into what we are and who we are today. But when it comes to social issues, uh, when it comes to um, you know, how to solve the issues of um, crime, how to solve the issues of an opiate uh, epidemic, how to solve the issues of um, you know, the state incorrectly uh, putting somebody to death that didn't commit the crime. When we talk about these issues, we have to look at these things in their specific nature, not with the guys that, OK, well, I'm part of X party or I believe in X. Thus, I have to – everything has to be in line with this. So ultimately, I, I want I want the listeners today, I want myself in the future – to take a step back from all this stuff, to kind of look at a look at where we stand and figure out that, okay, maybe the person I, I, I disagree with on something, maybe they're not evil. <laughs> maybe they're not a bad person. You know, maybe they just think differently than me. Maybe their vision of the world or vision of human nature is different than mine. Maybe that's what's causing it. Like I said, most people tend to focus on the specific policies and issues, but I think we need to start at at the foundation. You need to start at where you need to start at the basis. That you know, you start at first principles, really, and you need to see why a person and how a person views the nature of humans. Because once you can figure out how a person views the nature of humans, you can kind of put together how they view how they how they how they how they view society should work. And how they view government should work and how they view, you know, particular things that have happened in history and in, and in the past and in, and um, and what could happen in the future. So, you know, if we don't have civility, you know, uh, if civility is out of style, where where do we go? You know, I mean, back in the day when the, the height of incivility was interrupting your debate opponent, that was the height of incivility. Now, with the current uh, things that have going on in, 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 in our politics for the last few years, that seems like a, uh, a different world. It doesn't seem like a world we, we used to think about. Now, um, just to kind of bring this all together and kind of you know, wrap it up and put a bow on it 
<laughs> to, to speak uh, metaphorically. I I would say that you know when it comes to when it comes down to the conflict of vision, when it comes down to uh, you know the the polarization of our country, and I, I'm, I'm hoping to do a show with a few guests on the politi- uh, the uh, you know toxic. Uh, Toxic tribalism and political tribalism and how that is causing a lot of issues for our country and I want to kind of get into the weeds of it because today I kind of, you know, diagnosed at least what I think the the problem is, you know, and that's the conflict of visions as diagnosed by Dr. Soul. And I, I think I, I diagnosed one of the one of the um, solutions we can do, individuals can do on their everyday life, and that's being more civil. Now, like I said, being civil doesn't mean you're tolerant of intolerance. No. When there is intolerance, we should never tolerate it. Never. Um, and that's something that we need to keep in our minds because every single day we'll be told by X person and Y person that this is the way you should think, including me, <laughs> and this is the way you should think and this is why – the way you've been thinking is wrong. And what I'm what I'm trying to say today is the way we've all been thinking about things isn't necessarily wrong, isn't necessarily right. People have different views on the way the world works. People have different views on the fundamentals of human nature. People have different views on the fundamentals of how and how big and how much power is government should have. So ultimately – there is differences between us, but the differences, at least the differences that aren't, uh, you know, catastrophic, makes us what makes us beautiful. Makes us it, that's what makes us human is that we have differences. Now, another thing I said, uh, I think it was in show two, and in a conversation with a friend, um, I talked about, you know. Talk, you know, when, when you're talking to somebody, specifically somebody you disagree with, listen to them like they have something to teach you, like you could learn from them. Like maybe they know something you don't and maybe this, the thing that they – that you don't know and they know could change your life for the better. Keep that in mind. So always look at these types of conversations initially. And if you're getting the vibe that the conversation is going well and it's in good faith and that the person isn't trying to demean you or, or call you names or, or and they're disagreeing honestly and they're disagreeing kindly, you know, then I, I honestly feel that there's a lot to learn from each other. But again, if a person is arguing in, in bad faith, is ad, you know, using ad hominem attacks, attacking your character, name calling. Um, saying, you know, again, the example I used about people who are for and against the minimum wage is, you know, people that are against it usually will get types of, uh, you know, name calling from people who are for it. And, you know, they'll, they'll say that you don't care about the poor. Like I, like I mentioned earlier, like this is an example and this isn't the way we should talk to each other. Um, if somebody says something, if you are a proponent of the minimum wage and you meet somebody or know somebody that doesn't or is not in favor of the minimum wage, instead of saying, oh, you don't care about the poor, you should say, well, why do you think that is not a good policy? You have to get down to the weeds and sometimes getting down to the weeds can cause you to change your mind. Sometimes it can cause them to change their mind. But that's why we shouldn't be married to our ideas. We shouldn't be married to our ideas. Our ideas – our thoughts, our opinions are just as valuable as the validity of them, just as valuable as, as how much truth they have. And the more truth an idea or a, po- or a policy or, or, or a statement is, the more truth there is in that, then the more we should adopt that in our, into, our, into our worldview and into our lives. Now, that's, that's something we can do. That's something – so simple and so easy because people look at the political turmoil. People watch TV and watch the news. People see it within their friend groups and families. Not Obviously not everybody but a lot of people do and even if they don't pay attention to it, they see it or they hear about it. Now, this is something we can do because we, we can't solve everything, right? 
We can make incremental changes to make our lives better. We we can't just make a big change like that and then everybody starts being civil and everybody starts waking up and, and, and mentioning how stupid they were. No, no, that's not that's not the way humans are. That's not the way it's going to work. What's going to work, at least what I think was going to work and what I'm going to try to do myself is for the people that I have disagreements with, for the people that I feel that their points of views are are either harmful or or, or just flat out wrong or uh, you know uninformed, I'm going to try to hear them out. And something we need to end up doing when we disagree with people. It's called uh, – and this is a great idea and we need to do this. Um, it's called steel manning. And steel manning <laughs> – so just real quick. Straw manning is the proponent – the idea that it's a common form of argument and it's an informal fallacy based on – you know, given the impression that you're going to refute an opponent's argument while actually refuting an argument that wasn't presented by the opponent. So you're basically attacking a straw man. So somebody will give you an argument and then you erect a straw man of their argument, not really their argument, but it sounds close to it, and then you attack that. That's straw manning. Um, and we need to stop doing that as a people. We need to stop doing that because that's going to cause us to get into arguments that will – Put us in a position that people will end up not wanting to talk to us, or, or you know, or not liking our our way, the way we characterize each other and characterize our arguments. What we need to do is steel manning. So steel manning an argument is the opposite of straw manning. It's the idea uh, to find the best form of an opponent's argument to test, the, you know, test the opinion. So that would be like somebody gives you an argument, and let's say you see some holes in it restate their argument back to them in a better way, whatever way you think you can do it, and then ask them if that's what they really think. If they say, yeah, then you can go ahead and, and continue with the, with the discussion. Because most times, most people will say something and particularly say an argument about a, a, a particular topic, and it, they won't necessarily have you know, the, the words in that moment to, to make it the best argument they possibly can. So it's our job to make sure that we can steel man their arguments as best as we possibly can. And then from there, if we disagree with their argument, to tear it down and then to produce our own. And that's that's what civil discourse is about. It's not about straw manning. It's not producing. It's not about ad hominems. It's not about cherry picking. It's not about you know a bunch of these other logical fall- or illogical fallacies that we put on each other. Or excuse me, informal fallacies that we put on each other. Um, this is all about critical thinking, and if we if we're going to be uh, students of critical thinking, if we're going to be people that want to come off well and want to have arguments in good faith, what we need to do, number one, is understand that people have different visions on human nature. Number two, that the other person I'm talking to and disagree with, they're not evil; <laughs> they're just wrong, or or maybe I'm wrong. So that's something we need to look into and I, maybe I can learn something from them. You know, and then the other thing I can tell you is like stop strawmanning people. Steel man them. Take their argument, clarify it, make it stronger, present it to them, ask them, is this what you think is, is this what you're talking about? If they agree, go ahead and then dismantle the argument. But don't dismantle the person. We have to make sure that what we do in our everyday lives will continue on throughout eternity. It's like Marcus Aurelius. What we do now echoes in eternity. And what we have to do, to, at least to make, in my opinion, to make things better, is reintroduce civility in our own lives, in our own discussions, in our own arguments, so that hopefully the more and more people introduce civility in the argument, the more and more this starts having a multiplying exponential and even hopefully a logarithmic effect on the world and the public at large. So I just want to thank you guys for listening today. And uh, I really want to, uh, you know, it's, this is 11 shows down the hatch and I'm really happy and, and really proud uh, to have to continue have done, to, excuse me, to have continued doing this and to have, uh, come all this way and thank you for the listeners for listening and 
and hearing me uh, talk about politics and philosophy and economics and all this stuff. Uh, I wouldn't be here without your guys' support. And uh, again, thank you all and uh, stay civil. Have a good day. Thank you.